0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So good afternoon. Welcome back. I hope that was an opportunity to settle in and digest not only the food, but maybe a little bit of what we talked about this morning, because we're going to move on this afternoon to some other aspects of renunciation and some other ways of seeing it. So we'll start now with looking more more of a focus on the mental or more maybe internal renunciation. What's going on in the mind when we are working with uh, renunciation practice? This is of course relevant for our talk earlier about material renunciation because um, you know what's going on in the mind has a big effect on what we're able to let go of externally and certainly uh, as Ruby talked about so beautifully what we see when we attempt to do (laughs) renunciation like letting go of reading fiction or uh, food or other things what we run into is the desire in the mind and the mind telling us why we really need that and getting angry about not being able to have what it wants. And so, you know, regardless of the the object, (laughs) we have to work with what's going on in the mind. So this is our chance to single out that, uh, that aspect of renunciation and explore some of the possibilities that come when the focus is on the mind like that. So now we ask, we can also maybe extend the question beyond just the physical requisites, to ask what is needed in our mind also. And so this is really interesting territory because it begins a deep examination of of desire, of thought, of views, particularly views about the self, and conceit and other things that are happening in the mind. A friend of mine, um, years ago, went on the... New Year's retreat at Spirit Rock. And she came back and she said, oh, the retreat was all about renunciation for me. And I said, really? What, you know, what did you do? Did you do the eight precepts? And she said, oh no, I didn't do any of that. I just watched um, every thought that came into my mind and I asked, was that thought needed? And the answer was always, no. <laughs> I thought, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so she just realized so much of what was going on in her mind was um, chatter of various kinds. Now, it's not that we stop that from happening, necessarily. The mind kind of does that. But it's helpful to know <laughs> that it's not needed because then we're less likely to pick it up and start running around with it and doing things with it, right? So I'm going to go back and read a couple of quotes that I read, a couple of things I said earlier, just to get this different angle on them. So this is a quote from Gill. Gill. Renunciation is the capacity to let go of any desire which might cause suffering and hurt. Without being able to let go of a desire, there is no freedom. So we see that there's this juxtaposition in the mind of being able, the capacity, having the capacity to let go of desire and having, you know, having freedom. So maybe there's a juxtaposition between attachment to the desire and freedom. And we can feel that in the mind. Um, There's almost a feeling of contraction around, you know, the um, desire. People say that their mind darkens or closes or gets smaller in certain ways when it's fixated or focused on something, driven towards something. And there can be a literal feeling in the mind of openness, spaciousness, ease. Um, freedom when that is let go so we can tune into as we practice we learn to tune into that sensation in the mind so that um, that's the place where we can do the letting go before we have to be working with the results of the mind the actions or the words that we've done because of the mind and this goes to what um the example that Mirka gave of Munindraji letting go of the anger in the moment, so he didn't have to snap at the person who had made him angry and then, and then realize, oh, whoa, I'm angry, and then clean that up somehow. It's good to get good at cleanup. Um, but he saw that in his mind before it turned into any kind of an action externally and was able to let go of it there. And then Joseph Goldstein said that a renunciation is non-addiction. So this is a similar f- feeling in the mind. You know, we imagine, we, we imagine the feeling of addiction, of having to have something, needing, uh, the whole world becomes about that. It's said, you know, that a thief only sees the pockets when he sees a saint, <laughs> you know. So it's like just seeing what we're interested in um, versus the openness of not needing a particular thing from a situation or uh, and then having the mind be open and able to take in much more and able to respond much more effectively to what's actually needed as opposed to what the mind is projecting that it needs. And then here's an additional one uh, from Suzuki Roshi. True renunciation is not giving up things but accepting that they will go away. So that puts a different spin on it, you know, it's that, uh, it's not so much, we can think of renunciation as this thing that we do, you know, we have things in our life, and we're going to let them go, or we're going to refrain from using them, or we're not going to take them in, it's all this kind of manipulation, um, which is of course one side, you know, Ruby talked about skillful development, uh, but there's also a sense of things are going away anyway. <laughs> so we don't, have to, uh, we don't have to give them up or let them go. We just have to be okay when they naturally end. So uh, Philip Moffat, in his book, uh, Emotional Chaos to Clarity, has a chapter on renunciation. It's actually, it's interesting book. It's about, um, more about kind of finding direction in your life, a little more coaching kind of flavor. Very much lay practice, for sure. And I have to say, that the chapter on renunciation is really short, and it's kind of near the end. So, you know, you've kind of gotten through the bulk of the book to get there. And the, he doesn't say too much, and I think he almost apologizes at the beginning of it. But I thought it was a very valuable chapter, so I'm going to single it out. And in there, he offers recommendations of three uh, types of renunciation that lay people can practice and that are helpful if you want to have be leading a meaningful life and be um, finding joy and pleasure and happiness through your actions in the world. So these are not actually they're they're framed a little bit uh, in a little bit light language, but um, they're not they go very deep. <laughs> these are not uh, super easy practices. So the first is, I renounce being the star of my own movie. (laughs) Sound familiar? Yeah. So if you think of, if you notice your thoughts, what is the subject of most of your thoughts? It's me, right? It's about me, and so you know what I'm going to do, what I think about this, etc. If it's about other people, it's mostly about what I think about other people, (laughs) right? So it's still about, still about my viewpoint, and. Um, often we have ourselves framed, at least in our future and past kind of story making. We have ourselves framed as the hero of the story or the star of the movie that's happening. And we don't. We, we might forget as we're walking around that everybody we encounter they're the star of their own movie. <laughs> they're not. They're like a minor character in my movie, but in their movie they're the star and I'm the minor character. It's helpful to think about that sometimes. Gil talks about actually that he was. Sometime in his early 20s, he had the realization, the very important major insight, that um, his father had a whole life besides being his father. (laughs) Like, that wasn't the entire purpose and thing that he thought about all the time, but that actually, in fact, his father had had, like, decades, a couple decades of life before Gil was even there, and that was, like, a whole revelation. So... You know, we get this in varying degrees. But I think it's... Um, so what does it mean? You know, what does it mean to renounce being the star of our own movie? It doesn't mean that everybody else becomes the star and our whole life is about, you know, making everybody else, building everyone else up and diminishing ourselves. Not That's not what it's saying at all. I mean, this is something to practice with. But, you know, what is it like to be in a room and um, be open to everything that's happening there, not from my perspective, you know, and so maybe we have the idea, how can I help what's happening here, or um, maybe there's not even that idea at all. Gil says sometimes people turn to him at a table and ask his opinion, and he's been in a mode where he wasn't thinking at all about his opinion of what was happening, and he has a moment of coming back and says, what, what, oh right, I mean, reasonable question to ask the opinion of someone who's there. But it's an interesting practice to imagine. You will just take in the idea of not being the center of what's happening and doing that in a skillful way. Okay, the second renunciation that Philip Moffat offers is, I renounce measuring the success of my life by how many of my desires are met. So this is actually a very powerful one. Because we tend to walk around with an idea of what's supposed to be happening. <laughs> and uh, mostly when we think about, is my life going well? We would answer, someone says, how's your life going? You, th- you sort of take in the gestalt and you think, oh yeah, it's going pretty well. You know, and What you mean is my job's going pretty well, my relationship's going pretty well, I'm pretty healthy. Um, it's... Very much about our um, is my life somewhat pleasant right now, not that that's you know uh, a bad thing to have going on in your life at all, or that we shouldn't you know make some attempt to make our life comfortable to um, to meet our skillful desires It's completely fine, but is that a measure of the success of your life, given how little control we actually have over some of the things that come to us, we don't really have control if we're healthy tomorrow. We know that, right? This is, you know, we don't have control if we're alive by the end of today. So, you know, what is the measure of, if we're going to use a measure, maybe we don't eventually let go of that, but, you know, how how do we decide if we're living well in the world? And his suggestion is um, to look at how closely we are Uh, adhering to our intentions not the results necessarily but the intentions which Ruby talked about so beautifully it's the the spirit of what we're you know what we're doing in the world our values that we're living by and if we feel like yeah you know I I lost my job this week and I'm not feeling well and so forth but um, I really stuck to what I said I was going to do Um, then, you know, maybe that's a measure of saying, yeah, it it was successful in some way. Meaningful, valuable. I mean, he uses somewhat business language because he works with a lot of business people. But I think that this can also go very deep. We can also, as spiritual people, begin to measure the success of our practice by you know, how many attainments we think we have or how many retreats we've been on, um, how many official training programs we have certificates from, (laughs) you know, these kinds of things. And uh, these aren't necessarily going to be the most valuable either. Sometimes I think about if I'm lying on my deathbed, you know, what is it that is going to be really valuable? Most people don't say... I wish I'd spent more time in the office, <laughs> you know. So that's kind of an extreme example, but in the same way, you know, if, um, if life was about meeting all of my desires, I don't know if that would be the most meaningful thing that I could have by the end. I think it would be more about, you know, developing wholesome qualities, understanding my intentions, learning to align my external behavior with my internal values those kinds of things. So this is a big renunciation compared to the usual measures that were are given. Your salary, your house, your car, your iPhone, you know, the other things. This is completely different orientation and that's why it goes in the idea of renunciation to go against the stream of what we're offered in mainstream Western society. So if you've mastered those two completely, you can go on to the third, no, <laughs> I'm kidding, uh, which is, I renounce my attachment to being right. Ooh, really? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Philip said that was the hardest one for him because he had grown up um, at a, in a situation where it was very important somehow that he defend his um, way of seeing things. I don't know if we have, may or may not have had that conditioning, but nonetheless, Uh, Everyone has, we we enjoy being right, right? And sometimes, um, I've certainly found myself uh, sometimes adhering to being right over what was skillful in the situation, you know, um, so really pointing out that uh, there really should have been a period at the end of that sentence or something, um, when it actually was kind of hurtful to the person that I was criticizing the way they had written something and, and that it was so much more important in that moment to um, to support what they were doing, for example, than to worry about every last detail, even though I was right, you know. Maybe I wasn't, sometimes I'm not, right? But that brings up the important question of do we know when we're really right? But, you know, so th- this is, um, this is a renunciation very much of our... Image our stance in the world. And this is starting to let go, I think, of deeper things, ways of being, habitual um, positions that we take and selves that we are in the world, how we want to be. Adon Amuro talks um, in one of his books, it might have been the one about uh, the connection to Tibetan practice, I'm not sure which, but he got to some point where he found that he had to go to a lot of meetings and at the monastery. And he found that he, at first he was very invested in people understanding his view, and, and when people repeated his words, that they really said what he had meant. And you know, he was very caught up somehow in, in everybody seeing him the way he saw himself, basically. And at some point he got just exhausted trying to do this, and he began to see, you know, what happens if I don't make any attempt to control how other people see me or talk about me or rephrase my words uh, etc and he said he had so much fun um, being in meetings and having people kind of misrepresent things and not saying anything you know I'm sure if it was politically important or something you know for whether it was if it was going to harm somebody he would have said something but he said that he um, he sort of enjoyed Uh, learning how other people saw him by all these misrepresentations and when he completely let go of needing to be right, needing other people to see him in a certain way. Hmm. So I've thought a lot about those three. I think those those three could be a lifelong practice in letting go of our egotistical association with the world. But I'd like to add uh, two more that I've found helpful specifically in spiritual practice um, as, well, you know, as well as out in the world. And the first is, uh, I renounce knowing how my mind should be at this moment and also knowing how my path should unfold. So another area where we can have ideas is what's supposed to be happening. <laughs> I'm a spiritual person. There shouldn't be anger arising or something like that or even knowing how my path should unfold. You know, I... I thought I was going to be uh, into retreat practice and just like stay with that and go on retreat every year for the rest of my life. And then some year comes and you think, you know, I don't really feel like going on retreat this year. Is that okay? You know, is something wrong? Off track? No, you know, it's something, something shifted, something like that. So this is a big letting go of, because we like to think that we're controlling our path in some way. Can we let go even of the control of, let's see. I think by next year I'm going to have mastered wise speech and then the year after that I'm going to start developing compassion. I think I'll do the Sati Center chaplaincy training after that. And then after that, I'm going to, uh-huh, and who's, <laughs> who's all the I doing all of that? So, we don't know what's going to come up next in our practice. We don't know what is the next layer in our mind that's going to need to be cleaned out, in a sense. And then maybe a subset of this, but I'll add it as the last, is I renounce trying to walk other people's paths. How many of us have done that? We've seen somebody, somebody inspirational maybe, who um, seems to really be at a flourishing time in their life, and we sort of look at what they've done, like, oh, that person quit their job, and joined the Peace Corps and then you know discovered a retreat center at the place where they'd been at the Peace Corps and their whole practice unfolded from there. You know what? I'm going to quit my job and join the Peace Corps. That's it. That's going to be the solution for me. Um, so this can happen. right? Usually uh, the specifics of what somebody else did are not going to be relevant for our path. The, the exact specifics are not going to unfold the same way. So now we can have the intention to say, okay, I get the idea. They let go of their view of how they should be in the world. That's how they were able to quit their job. What if I were to let go of that? So And see what unfolds for you in that intention. But I I just caution against the specifics. Usually we're trying to walk somebody else's path in that sense. And we get our own path. (laughs) We get our own path. So... As we move into these more mental renunciations and looking at the mind and letting go of what I would call habitual patterns of behavior, which are the the ones that are really deep-seated in there, there start to be benefits actually. This is not all like difficult stuff and we got to work on it and we're nose to the grindstone and so forth. There start to be benefits, of course, for ourselves in letting go. But I think there start to be external benefits also. And I just want to touch on to those. So actually at a very physical level, living more simply and doing uh, many of the practices that we talked about this morning have actual environmental benefits. You know, Um, people who drive their cars a lot, fly in planes, have a high Um, burn rate lifestyle, if you will, are for the most part uh, burning up a lot of resources and using the environment in ways that is not respectful and hence that has an effect, an impact on the global ecosystem. So living a simple life of care, of mindfulness, of respect for the physical objects in our life and for the way we're relating actually has huge ecosystem-wide benefits. Uh, Don't worry that you're doing what you feel like you're doing as a small piece. And then, maybe more deeply, as the mind lets go and we're less caught up in the drama of our story, we're not the star of our own movie anymore and so forth, um, we have an increased capacity to serve others. We start thinking, oh, you know, I have enough energy now It's not all caught up in my internal work to start giving through whatever, through volunteering. This center is run entirely on volunteer, time and effort and talent and finding ways to serve others in the world. So, you know, we go out and volunteer somewhere and um, help teach Teach people to speak English when they're new arrivals in this country, for example, or uh, serving the poor, serving the homeless, whatever is attractive to your heart. That becomes much more available once we're uh, we've done some of this internal letting go, and it's not about uh, getting and having and being and doing and so forth. And then as we let go even of having and doing and being and frenetic activity, or even within that, I think the potential of renunciation is that we become a model of calm abiding in a changing world. The world is so fast paced, so dramatic, so stressful for people who are not aware of how to live in a situation like that, that if we're living a lifestyle that's calm, collected, based on the precepts, uh, interested in not being the star of our own movie, we become somebody that other people, maybe they can't even articulate it, but they say, you know, there's, I just like being around that person, I feel calmer, I feel clearer, something like that. This is the traditional role of the fourth heavenly messenger in the teachings, is that, um, I don't know if you know the story, but there was... um, there's multiple different ways to say it, but essentially aging illness and death or the uh, the difficult parts of life are the first three heavenly messengers. They wake us up to the reality of being human. But it doesn't just end there. Uh, There's a fourth messenger, traditionally said that the Buddha saw this, um, the pre-enlightenment Buddha, and that was what sparked his spiritual quest, although that's a later story. There's a fourth heavenly messenger of seeing an alms mendicant walking calmly also, later, King Ashoka was said to see a calm uh, alms mendicant walking through a battlefield after the battle was over and everyone was dead. And in both cases, there was this sense of, wow, you know, what do they have? You know, what, how can they just, you know, sort of glide along like this? And, and there's a heart response to seeing uh, a person who has that kind of presence, that kind of um, internal alignment to be able to walk in that way through the world and so we can um, become like that through practices like what we're talking about and that is a huge huge gift to the world so I'm going to end with a provocative quote from Pima Chodron Um, see how this idea of renunciation resonates for you it brings it back home I don't want to give leave us two hanging out in in space. So the whole journey of renunciation or of starting to say yes to life <laughs> is first of all realizing that you've come up against your edge that everything in you is saying no and then at that point softening. This is yet another opportunity to develop loving kindness for yourself with re- which results in playfulness, learning to play like a raven in the wind. So there's the calm Abiding and there's the playfulness of having a, you know, having a free response to what's happening and all of that is possible when we're not clinging, not caught in our own drama. So I offer these as um, visions or benefits of what can start to come when we start to release internally and become unlocked in how we're able to meet life So I I wanted to offer both of these because some people, when they let go, become very calm and equanimous. Some people, when they let go, become playful and joyous, and that's what they have to offer the world. So I'll stop here and turn it over to Oren, and we'll explore um, something of what he's found through his practice of this.